I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 63. Uh, So, uh, happy 4th of July, everybody, and for listeners who are not in the United States, you must be kicking yourself right now, huh? It's a joke, of course. I like, I'm a big fan of fake jingoism. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I apologize. We we are trying to get these out uh, on Tuesday every week, and I do recognize that this one is going to be going up pretty late so you know um i apologize for that but this was the only time that we could get together and record uh because we wanted this episode to be uh just right it remains to be seen if we're there yet but uh we'll do what we can so all right i'll bring in my co-host let's see what he says when i say josh long hello hello hey all right that's very exciting I was, I was trying to be normal for you, you know, Fourth of July and all. Got to be on my best behavior. <laughs> There's no horsing around on Fourth of July. There's really not. Uh, and that's the thing, except for that Paul Revere horse. There's the horse that has to do with Fourth of, of July. So, uh, <laughs> ah. yeah. Sorry, everybody. That's Nick and Night humor. <laughs> so I'm in. <laughs> I know you are. Oh, yeah. We we do need to spend not this episode because uh, the the content is far too serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do need to spend some time talking about your uh, childhood love of Nick at Night. I think Man, it's, we could have a whole episode on Gilligan's Island. I know we could. I know we could. What kind of what kind of stuff is God teaching us through Gilligan's Island, Josh? All, all off the top of your head, uh, if you get lost on a desert island, you can make anything out of coconuts and bamboo. Because God has provided you with such materials. Exactly. It's part of his creation. <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I also... So, it is very late on uh, Tuesday night, and my neighbors are not opposed to celebrating a little early. So, if you hear a loud explosion, Josh and I are all right, unless, of course, we're not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's just my, my very zealous neighbors mm-hmm. uh, celebrating Independence Day. They love either America or explosions, maybe both. I think it's entirely possible that it's both. I don't know. But anyway, so, uh, all right. So, oh, a special thanks to everybody who emailed about the last episode, and thanks to Sean for being on that episode. Um, Thank you, Sean. I apologize that it was so long, although some people seem to not be bothered by that. Uh, people, Some people said that that was their favorite episode yet, which I find wow. fascinating. I didn't know that, but that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Very, Good for you, Sean. Yeah, you really uh, knocked it out of the park on that one. Sean's going to start his own podcast. Yeah, and he'll start each one with meowing and doing impressions of my cat, Charlie. (laughs) So, all right. I have no idea why we picked this movie to be our 4th of July movie. 
Um, <laughs> I guess I guess it just sort of worked out that way. We didn't even necessarily connect the two. But uh, this episode, we are going to be discussing the Coen Brothers film from 2007, No Country for Old Men. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it. A lot of people have at this point. Um, it won Best Picture, Directors, uh, Supporting Actor, Screenplay, and I think I think one more, but I don't recall what it was. Um, was it I know it was definitely those four. Maybe editing? I think they were up for editing because I remember particularly, for anyone who doesn't know this, the, the Coen brothers edit their own films, ah, but yes. they edit it under a pseudonym, yes. which I... Do you remember the name? Roderick Janes. Roderick Janes. Yes. <laughs> and so... Uh, at, at the Oscars, uh, they usually, when they're showing all the people that are nominated, they have like a little, you know, they show them they're up on the screen. And it's usually because they're sitting in the audience somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so you see a little picture, you know, video of them. But um, for Roderick Janes, they have, uh, because he's not there, because he's not a real person, the Coen brothers had taken a picture, like an old timey looking picture of some man who looked like he was 80 years old. And they used that as the picture for Roderick Janes, which I thought was a Yeah, they've a put together joke. a whole personality for Roderick Janes. Uh, I, have, I have a book of uh, the screenplays from Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. And they, uh, the foreword is by Roderick Janes. <laughs> and he is just this old curmudgeon who doesn't really like the work that they do. Uh, he likes... The way he puts it, he always does his edit, uh, and then they always change it, and he always winds up hating what they do. But due to union reasons, their <laughs> names aren't on it as the editors. It's still under him, even though he doesn't stand by anything in the film, any <laughs> editing decisions. So, um, so yes. Uh, that, but those, I, I definitely know that it won those four. And... Um, I'll start by saying this. Um, you know, we will be having some discussions about, uh, about um, you know, the, the content of the film. But I also wanted to, I wanted to sort of acknowledge that not unlike The Avengers or The, or the Dark Knight, at this point, the movie's five years old now, and for those that didn't see it in the theater, they have since seen it uh, on, on DVD, I think. And so we don't have to go into a lot of detail there. But what I will say is that, and I, I'm probably overreaching, but uh, this is speaking about my own opinion. So what do you know? Nothing. If some, Nothing is the answer. Thank you, Josh. This is why I have a co-host. You're welcome. So if somebody were to ask me, what are some movies that you consider to be flawless, which is to say movies that you think are perfect? The list is fairly short. Uh, you know, you can keep a... You know, the, even in, in the best films, you can find a, a, a certain flaw in logic or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. You're like, oh, no, well, that kind of keeps it. But, of course, at that point, you're nitpicking. But if I were to make a list of the movies that I think are perfect, uh, No Country for Old Men would be on there. Hmm. I think the Coen brothers can be... They're not always, but they can be very meticulous... And with No Country for Old Men, it certainly does, it, it almost has a, a feeling being like hermetically sealed. Like it's just, they just got it right and then just closed it up. Um, now, I do occasionally find the film a little emotionally cold, but there's, it's, it has everything that I think you want in a movie. There's suspense, there's, 
drama. There's a lot of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's beautiful to look at. It's beautiful to listen to. And I, and I think you, just because you mentioned emotional coldness, I, I think if that's true, I think it's intentional to a point. Because yes. there's definitely uh, – the storytellers are – uh, presenting this film in kind of a removed way. Yes, and uh, what I was, where I was headed was that uh, it is a it is a film that really does take on the uh, the emotional components of the characters uh, that are in the story. The probably the three main characters, and when I say that it's meticulous, uh, there I guess I guess you'd say there are three leads, even though um, Javier Bardem won Best Supporting Actor. Um, I'd say the three leads are Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, and um, Javier Bardem. Both Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem are, both those characters are very meticulous in the things that they need to do. They're very precise, and they're very careful. Mm-hmm. They, have plan, they have a plan worked out in advance, and they do what they can to make that work. So there, there will be a certain degree of emotional coldness when you are sitting down and working on a plan. Yeah. Then there's also Tommy Lee Jones, who really is not that actively engaged in the story. He's almost just there to witness it and certainly to narrate it. And you mentioned there's kind of a remove there, and I feel like that's his character. He's removed from things, but he's still interested in the the goings-on, as we are. Mm -hmm. And And so that's what I mean when I say that every feeling in the film that the audience might have matches one of the characters and and it's all on purpose you know i i feel like there's nothing unintended in that film now one could make the argument that that is a that is inherently a flaw that some of the best movies out there are a little if not technically sloppy they could be a little thematically sloppy which leaves room for the the audience to bring something of themselves to it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd say another movie that year is There Will Be Blood, which I think No Country for Old Men is a better movie in one respect, and I think There Will Be Blood is a better movie in a different respect. Hmm. Um, I think with that one, and I think we've talked about before, Paul Thomas Anderson just seemed like he had this story that was just itching to get out of him. Eating and its just, way out of him. Yeah, and he just had to tell it mm-hmm. and see what happened. You yeah. know? And I respect that a great deal, um, and uh, but that's not to put anything uh, negative on the Coen brothers. I think they have done amazing work, and I think it's everybody has a different uh, opinion about what their best movie is. I think for me, I think it's probably Fargo. Still, I think it um, is for me. Although I, I feel like this one might be one that in ten or fifteen years that might, you know, my opinion on which one of those two is the best could could change because. Yeah. I do, I do really love this movie, and I've I've always been a fan of the Coen Brothers. They're one of the few filmmakers that I've seen all of their movies, and yeah, I don't know. There's a lot. We'll, we'll get into it more, but there's a lot of great stuff. Well, and what's interesting is uh, you said like, well, in ten or in ten or fifteen years, this one might be my new favorite. Who's to say in ten or fifteen years they might not make <laughs> three or four more? One could say masterpieces. That's true, and I, I am, I'm kind of excited about it in that respect because um, a lot of filmmakers, some of our our favorites, tend to have like periods where you'll you'll see some of their greatest movies, and then it might sort of taper. A lot of them kind of peak, mm-hmm. and uh, so part of me was worried that 
you know, I loved Fargo and I, I, I liked, but not as much, uh, Big Lebowski and, um, uh, I liked Man Who Wasn't There. I like, there's a lot of, of those that I really liked. But then recently they had made, uh, not super recently, but Intolerable Cruelty I didn't like. No. Um, Lady Killers I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Burn After Reading had a couple things that I, that I liked, but as a whole I, I didn't love the movie. So I was kind of worried that they were sort of, not in peak form anymore. So then when this film came out, I was, you know, I was going to go see it, but yeah. I was, I was very pleasantly surprised. Well, they did this and then they did burn after reading. We were just like, Oh, well, all right. Well, <laughs> I guess you just felt like you wanted to have some fun. Yeah. And then they did a serious man, which I like more every time I see yeah, it. And then that was a, that was a great one too. And that's one that surprisingly I end up thinking about a lot after yeah. the fact, like I'm surprised. And then they did I... true grit, which was much better than I ever thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I don't remember the one they're working on next, but you know they're they're filmmakers that uh, I'm just always excited to to see what what happens next. Even you know it's it reminds me of uh, you know my my uh, my old theater teacher who always used to say like you know if you're gonna like if you're gonna fail you might as well fail big. The point being like just absolutely go for it. Like if you're gonna try something on stage, don't do it. You know halfway just absolutely do it i'll tell you if it doesn't work but i will at least acknowledge what you're trying you know that you're trying to do something Mm. and uh and so with something like burn after reading or even intolerable cruelty or the lady killers like especially like intolerable cruelty like that is clearly their love letter to like the screwball comedy yeah and then lady killers is a remake of a movie that they clearly love and even though i don't think they're totally successful a, a real love of film and filmmaking perhaps too much love and it might have obscured their uh their vision a little bit in the movie they were making mm-hmm. but it's still like that idea of like go big or go home and they'll always they'll always go big yeah they're always bringing something yeah. so it's never like i feel like their movies are never blasé <laughs> no not really <laughs> but uh which as dry as they are is kind of funny to think about yeah so no country for old men um I knew nothing about it going in, really. I had seen the trailer. I I think at that point I had read... No, I don't think I had read any uh, Cormac McCarthy yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had read... After, after that, I think I read uh, some Blood Meridian. And then I got distracted by another <laughs> book that I think I had to read for some reason or another. And then I came back to Blood Meridian and I'm like, I think I have to start at the beginning. <laughs> so... Um, so my experience with Cormac McCarthy is actually uh, very limited. Um, did you get a chance to... Have you had a chance to read the book, No Country for Old Men? I have, yeah. I had read The Road before uh, before I saw this movie. Um, and I, I knew nothing of Cormac McCarthy. Uh, actually, Megan was reading The Road and suggested that I read it. And I'm, I'm very glad I did. Um, and so I discovered that I really like his, his tone and his writing style... Um, then when the movie came out, I think, I think I saw the movie, then got the book, read the book and then saw the movie again Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it was, um, I don't know. It was that exciting to me and I'm not the sort of person who sees a movie more than once in the theaters. There's very few that that's been the case with and that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, this is one people one thing that people have had kind of as a criticism as of it that it's too close to the source material. Yeah. For me that's not a problem at all. Um I feel like 
when you're adapting a book, you've got to either just take elements of it and say, these are the elements I want to make a movie about. That's what happens with uh, uh, There Will Be Blood, because mm-hmm. I read that book as well, which after, after like the first 50 pages, everything's different. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't even go in the same direction at all. But that's because Paul Thomas Anderson said, like, the, here, these are the themes and like the starting points that I want, and I just want to use those as a jumping off point. Um, what the Coen brothers wanted to do with No Country for Old Men was to really capture the 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 style and the tone of Cormac McCarthy's writing, and I think they did that perfectly. Like that movie looks and sounds and happens like a Cormac McCarthy novel does. Mm-hmm. And yes, that is that is a criticism that people have, especially with the last twenty minutes or so, when. One could say when the action is over, and then at that point, it's almost pure theme from then on. But it doesn't bother me. No, but. it doesn't at all. And I, I feel like the movie becomes—I feel like the, the movie becomes a lot less interesting if you cut out that last part. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, uh, I assume you're t- talking about the scene where Sugar comes to meet with uh, or to find the girl. Well, there's that, but then also the various with, uh, monologues that with, Tommy, with Lee Tommy Jones, Jones has yeah. with like. Uh, Oh shoot! About the dreams. Shoot, I don't remember the the guy's name. Uh, Barry Corbin, like a, a friend of his, like a, a former lawman who like lives oh, yeah. in a house with a bunch of cats and stuff. Like a character we've never seen before. But Tommy Lee Jones is talking to him, and then he's talking about his dreams, and you know, long, fairly drawn out scenes that have nothing to do with the quote unquote action, but have everything to do with the theme and the character. Yeah. Um. So I feel like. To me, it it's very relevant, and if you cut that out, somehow the film loses some of its soul, I think. Yeah, and it changes the tone for what the movie's about. Like, if you mm-hmm. take that stuff out, the movie's about a guy who tried to steal some money, and it didn't work out. Yeah. But the, the story, both in the book and the movie, is about so much more. Mm-hmm. And um, I think being committed to keeping that stuff in there and keeping the all this thematic stuff in was was a great idea uh in reading the book the uh specifically the scene when sugar meets with uh the girl i can't what is her name again uh carla Carla, yeah when he comes to find carla um that scene's considerably longer in the book and it it goes more into the the uh his idea and his his uh (laughs) i guess what he is or who he is yeah um which is really interesting. Uh, I think the Coen brothers do a good job in, in distilling the things that they need to get that don't make that scene go on for too long. I mean, you can't, no. can't have a 10-minute scene at the end of a movie where two people sit in chairs and talk to each other. Well, and I think they also understand how much an actor can bring to it. Like, yeah. in a book, you don't necessarily have to spell everything out, of course, but you can describe somebody's facial expression, but mm. we're not seeing it. Whereas, like, with... With what uh, Javier Bardem is doing with uh, Anton Chigurh, like, and what Kelly McDonald is doing, like, it's a great scene as it is right now. Yeah, it didn't need to be any longer. Like, no, I really think didn't. we got it. Yeah, you know, and and the the book I think you, does too require a little bit more because that character is so stony. I guess that he doesn't. We know what that character's like mostly because of what he says and because of, of like, distinct, clear actions. And mm-hmm. there's very little nuance in what he does because it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Um, either for him or for the story. So, to give a, a brief overview for the, of the story and, and as 
as I've said before, like I think there's something flawed in our format. Like, why give the story to a bunch of people who are clearly listening because they've seen the movie we're discussing? But uh, in in the broadest possible sense, uh, Josh Brolin plays a character named uh, Llewellyn Moss who lives in a trailer with his wife uh, Carla Jean, and he happens upon a horrible, bloody. Uh, scene of a crime where a bunch of guys are dead and he run and he explores and runs across a satchel full of money and he decides ah that's what this was all about and he takes it and in doing so the the little crime syndicate that all of these dead guys are uh, involved in they they go after him but they also engage the services of a character named Anton Chigurh played by Javier Bardem who kind of has his own thing going. Uh, He's not quite so interested in working for these men so much as, oh, they've put me on the trail of $2 million? Okay, I think I'm going to take that now. Um, Mm. And so he rebels against the people that hired him, and he just just does his own thing. Uh, It's worth talking about now. You know what? Actually, I'll save that for a moment. Um... So as he pursues Llewellyn, you see how much he is willing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that he has a strange... There seems to be a strange philosophy uh, behind behind how he functions. Another character says that it, it, it's, it's almost as if he has principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the principles are certainly not the type that you and I live by, but he does seem to have uh, a code of feel like ethics isn't the word <laughs> honor sure you could let's say, say a code, a code of, of honor. honor yeah and so so he's a very mysterious character in that it seems strange that he's pursuing money it seems like this guy wouldn't care that much about money yeah and to a certain extent you feel as though oh maybe he's almost maybe he needs the excuse maybe it's just like well, people are people need money, and uh, I'd like to have money. So, this is a good as good an excuse as any to go after somebody and kill a bunch of people a, a, along the way. Uh, but I'm being I think I'm being too reductive in the way that he's thinking. Uh, and it's worth noting now that his character is very similar in a lot of ways to uh, a character that show up the next year, 2008, in The Dark Knight, uh, that's the Joker. And so uh, we want to be careful to not uh, delve into too much territory that we did already with uh, our uh, Dark Knight episode. But the characters are very similar in that, in in the same way that the Joker burns a huge pile of money because he just doesn't seem to care that much, but does seem to understand it as a tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of how Anton Chigurh approaches it. He understands that he needs money to keep his life going. Mm -hmm. Whatever crazy life that might be that he's chosen for himself. So that's... Now, I'm sure you're wondering, well, where does Tommy Lee Jones come in? (laughs) Tommy Lee Jones is the local sheriff who knows Josh Llewellyn... uh, I'm sorry, not Josh Llewellyn. Llewellyn Moss, (laughs) played by Josh Brolin. Is there somebody named Josh Llewellyn out there? Maybe I went to high school with someone named Josh Llewellyn, or it might be some kind of singer. Anyway, 
So, uh, but he knows Llewellyn Moss and he knows Carla Jean and he's always about a step behind what's happening and he's able to piece together exactly, uh, what's been going on, but he's never really that actively involved in the action. Yeah. And so he sort of acts as, as a, one could say a sort of Greek chorus, Mm -hmm. a Texas Greek chorus, uh, who dispenses these stories and wisdom about uh, this case reminding him of a previous one and uh, reflecting on how things used to be as opposed to how they are yeah. and that sort of thing. So that's the basic story. And so it seems pretty conventional, really, to a certain extent. Uh, when you think about it, Anton Chigurh being a just a kind of a, a killing machine who's almost superhuman in his abilities... That's not that unusual for a suspense thriller, you know. Yeah. But they've they layer things on there. And I'd say the the thing that they layer on is what I would say is a fatalism. Mm-hmm. Um a feeling in, of inevitability. Um what what do you what would you say about that? I think that's true and I I think I I've always felt since seeing the movie that uh, Sugar almost acts more of like a force than a character. He's mm. he's almost supernatural in ways. Um, not that there's any like magical realism in it or anything, but uh, there's a. It, he seems too powerful, and he seems too uh, level-headed in the the craziness that's going on. To it's almost like he's a robot. Like <laughs> like. If the uh, if the reveal at the end were that he was a Terminator the whole time, yeah, that'd be a terrible movie. But I'd be like, I, c- I can see that. Yeah, he pulls off that. his face like uh, Yul Brenner, right? <laughs> um, you, I'm sorry, Yul Brenner in Westworld, in Westworld, not, not Yul Brenner the person. <laughs> he used to do that all the time. Yeah, that was at like parties. a party trick. Yeah, Ugh, that'd be an awful party. <laughs> Or maybe the best party you've ever gone to. I don't know. I feel like I'd you'd be at home with your wife, and you're like, "Do we have to go to this party again and watch Yul Brenner take his face off?" I just I just want to stay home. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to respond to that. I don't even know how to uh, transition into. Other there's things. no way. So I'll just go back to uh, sort of what we we're talking about. But the okay. yeah, I think a lot of the themes of the movie are about this. Um, I don't feel like the movie is fatalistic inherently, but I think some of the characters kind of see the world that way, yeah. and then we see it through their eyes in a little way. And and I feel like uh, Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers in, in adapting the movie are saying it seems easy to look at the world purely fatalistically because mm-hmm. of all these things, because there's a man out there who is going to kill random people, uh, yeah. looking for the, this, uh, this money, um, seemingly with seemingly no regard for human life or the fact that even a lot of people don't talk too much about this, but the fact that uh, just what Llewellyn does, he finds all these people dead in the desert and, what he gets out of that is there must be money here. He finds the money and he takes the money. Yeah. Um, which is terrible in itself. So, um, and then of course, Tommy Lee Jones is falling behind and seeing this wake of destruction and the world doesn't look very, 
uh, rosy, yeah. uh, either from our perspective seeing the movie or from Tommy Lee Jones' perspective commenting on the on the uh, the events. So, I feel like both the book and the movie, the the story is trying to make us take a step back and say, what do you what do you do with this? What do you do when you have a world that is like this. And it's the kind of thing that I absolutely love because when you think about it, a, a, a lesser filmmaker could have taken... Because the story itself, the, the, the active part of the story, uh, less the thematic, but it's, it's already... You know, it's kind of, a, kind of a crackerjack kind of thing. You know, it's... A lesser filmmaker could have stripped away any kind of philosophy and yeah. just had it be a cat and mouse movie yeah. with a particularly interesting villain in an interesting setting, which is, you know, out in the desert and yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, because there are plenty of movies like that. But by leaving this in, it it really feels like these types of events, they shake these characters to their core. And to a certain extent, it, it shook me as a moviegoer to my core. Because when I look at this, I... You know, I then go and look at a movie like, say, Kiss the Girls. I tried to think of maybe the most mundane, forgettable one. Uh, and Kiss the Girls is it. Um, where it's just, you know, a woman is kidnapped by this guy who uh, abducts, you know, abducts women and holds them prisoner and all that. And then there's the cop who's trying to, who's trying to, to catch him. Like, it's a very, it's a very run-of-the-mill uh, story. But... No Country for Old Men seems to say, seems to actually take that type of very movie-like plot and say, what do we, what, what do we do with this? Like, how does this affect us? Imagine if the stuff that you saw in movies was real and you had to face it. Imagine yeah. if one of your relatives was killed by Anton Chigurh. Imagine that you are the cop whose job it is to clean up after to this. clean up after him and to and and. This is just one of many crimes that are similar, even if it's not as uh, exciting or or uh, meticulously uh, executed as uh, the executions of Anton Chigurh. Even if it's just, you know, uh, a drug-related massacre, like these characters pick this up and they carry it with them, mm-hmm. and in that way, they really are not unlike we the uh, us the audience. Because we see movie after movie and we ter- carry these things with us. But this is the first one. Not the first one. There are other movies like this. This is a movie that says, yeah, but why do we... Like, maybe we should examine the effect this has on us. And I don't merely mean, you know, we should be, we should be bothered by movie violence. Like, that's, that's almost too mundane a theme. Yeah. But just, you know, when we watch the news, when we experience loss in our own life, when, mm. you know... Kids walking around on the streets with green hair. Green hair? Thank you. <laughs> That's from the movie. That's not just me. Who says it? I forget. The uh, One of the other cops. Yeah, yeah. He's like, if you told me 20 years ago there'd be kids walking out on the streets with green hair. And this take and th- the movie takes place in the early 80s, right? Like right I when the punk so. movement's uh, kicking yeah. in? Yeah. So we'll get to the humor of the film in a moment, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, so there's like all this, all this stuff, and like, and we're all witness to it. And what do we do with that? Like, we can't just go on and uh, go about our day, except we do, but we don't forget that. Like, we do absorb these things. I don't know. It's, it's a film that, uh, that is wise to 
to and this goes back to what we were talking about with with uh staying true to the book books can examine that sort of thing you know right and left uh movies usually don't Mm -hmm. and the fact that this one that the coen brothers like no this book it's interesting not merely because the characters are interesting and the story is interesting it's it goes beyond that. It's the effect that all of this is having on the characters and by extension, the reader. We want to keep that in there. Yeah. Um, And so, so yeah, uh, I guess we can start uh, breaking it down uh, a little bit though. I don't want to, I don't want to break it down too much um, because I feel like, you know, already we, we've talked it up quite a bit, but uh, you know, it's, I was talking about this movie with uh, my Battleship Pretension co-host, uh, David, the other day, who, by coincidence, happened to watch this, uh, uh, re-watch it uh, a few days ago. And he talked about just... There's a scene where Llewellyn is running away from a dog, a monstrous dog trained to kill. Uh, and he's... The, the guys that are after him, are they've sicked the dog on him, so, you know, it's not like it's just a dog running around. It's not some random thing, like hour number 14 in the first season of 24 when Jack Bauer's daughter is no longer in peril but the producers need to put her in peril somehow so hey here's a mountain lion for 15 minutes that's a real thing <laughs> moving on uh, so this dog is chasing him and so he runs into a stream it's a you know fairly good sized stream but I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a river and so you know he's swimming through it and then the dog jumps in and is just going after him and there's a humor to that there you know because and Josh Brolin, by the way, plays the moment brilliantly where mm-hmm. he looks back and kind of has this this uh, look on his face of like, are you kidding come me? On. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, come on. Like, that's a perfect... But it's not pure humor because if this thing catches him, it's going to rip him apart. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I, don't, I can't even put my finger on exactly how the Coen brothers did it, but you've got both the humor and the tension in the exact same moment. The humor does not diffuse the tension and the tension does not cancel out the humor and that happens throughout the film they have i mean there's a reason that they won best director for this like it's oh yeah that something like that is more than just the writing and it's Mm -hmm. more than just the acting it's all of these things put together and it certainly has something to do with the editing as well Mm -hmm. uh that roderick james he's pretty good (laughs) and so just the way they put together the the film and just their eye for a certain type of detail uh whether it be a facial expression or the way somebody set you know set a briefcase down or something like that. Um, there's a scene where Anton Chigurh kills somebody at very close range. They're both seated next to each other, and uh, then Chigurh is talking to somebody on the phone, and a pool of blood is slowly but surely creeping towards his feet. And just before it gets there, he lifts his feet up and puts them up on a bed. And that tells us quite a bit about Anton Chigurh that like he is at ease around death i mean clearly he just killed this guy but he's not panicked at the fact that he's in in the same room with a corpse like he'll happily take a phone call but he doesn't want to get blood on his shoes you know and that tells you something about how how dead inside this guy is (laughs) uh and it's and it's done and that little moment is done completely without speaking you know it's just it's purely visual and there's just uh it's just such a such an immensely watchable movie that is also hard to watch at times because of the suspense. Mm. Um, 
just from a from an overall directing standpoint, it, it this is why I say the movie is perfect because at no point, in my opinion, does it ever tip its hand too far in one direction or the other. It keeps a lot of uh, I don't know, like a, a lot of uh, emotional balls in the air. And I can't think of a scene that I don't like in that movie. I feel like every every when I watch it, every new scene is like, oh, good, now this scene. It's yeah. like you're excited for every new scene. <laughs> well, yeah, and there's there's a scene uh, where. Shigur is talking to a the owner of a store, and he's uh, and Shigur is taking umbrage with this guy. the this The owner of the store is played by an uh, an older actor whose name I don't know, and I'm sure I've seen him elsewhere, but he's not recognizable. And there is, and Shigur starts threatening him, but he doesn't actually threaten him. He doesn't actually say I'm going to kill you. Instead, he takes a little bit of umbrage with him, and then you know says. He's going to flip a coin and says, you know, what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? And these two guys are just like looking at each other, talking about the coin toss, never actually saying what's what they're really right. saying. There's a subtext there. And yeah. they, they the the store owner slowly seems to recognize it without yeah. ever mentioning it. And just and it's a wonderful I mean, the the Coen brothers managed to they they cast things perfectly, not merely in people like uh, Javier Bardem or a Tommy Lee Jones, but like this this actor that you don't know is great in that he's, scene. He's, he's just as watchable as uh, as uh, Anton Chigurh. And like that's a, that's a, a just a it's like a little play no, that yeah. scene. It's so yeah. perfect. They have a real knack for finding finding uh, what might otherwise be filler characters mm-hmm. and just finding they, they really give time to all of their characters. Like yeah. I, I feel like Looking back on a lot of their other movies, I don't feel like they skimp on anything. Like every little person has something. Like uh, the the two that I think of the most from this movie are that guy at the store, and then the woman at the trailer park. That's yeah. a delightful scene. There's another scene where it shows how great they are with humor. But uh, like the movie takes that woman so seriously, she is not going to let him back there because this yeah. is her job, and she's had about enough. Yeah, she. Uh, this is another scene where uh, Anton Chigurh wants to uh, get into um, Llewellyn's trailer and, and all that. And he wants to find out, well, where... And she's like, well, he's at work. And this is just the the woman who, like, runs the place, basically. Yeah. And he wants to know, well, where where does he work? And she's like, I, I can't tell you that. And, and he pushes her, and she just pushes right back. And just... <laughs> and you have this... And this is another, you know, this is... Good performance by her and another good performance by Javier Bardem because there's little things. It's just like he's not going to hurt this woman. He's going to walk away. Like <laughs> it's almost like he respects. Like she has no idea how close she's coming to death, and boy, she doesn't care. Like <laughs> yeah, and ju- she's you know it's almost as though he just he respects that level of forthrightness. Yeah, and uh, and it's and he never actually says it. You never see what the outcome of that scene is, Mm-mm. but. You don't have to. No. And, and, but yeah, I just love how the time that they give her and the treatment of her, um, the other ones that come to mind are from, from Fargo. I, I like the, the prostitutes. Oh yeah. Um, they have a great, another comical scene where they're being, uh, uh, interviewed, interrogated, interrogated, I guess is better. I was going to say interviewed and I was like, is that right? Um, but again, they're they are taken. Even though they're funny, they're taken seriously, and like they have a real purpose, and they are shown to be real people. Mm. And then another one. This is like a 
he he's got like two lines. Uh, the guy who's the parking attendant when oh, yeah. uh, when Steve Buscemi comes in to uh, to I think he comes to meet with. Well, he uh, first comes Jerry's in. He first comes into a swamp. Um, License plates with a with a car. That's what so it is. he comes in, then goes right back, and then out. decides he's going to leave. But then the guy at the the park attendant still wants the ten dollars because he's already yeah. been in. The guy's as nice as he could be about it. Yeah, but that ends up being his his uh, fatal flaw. Yeah, but just I I like I can picture that guy's performance still, yeah. even though it's such a small thing. Like, but he gets a full performance there, and they treat him with uh as a full character and uh back in my uh, acting days one of the monologues that i had at the ready in fact i think i could probably do it now i'm not going to was the monologue said by a guy whose face we never even really get to see which is mr mora uh who talks about he's out he was out by moose lake oh yeah and uh he sees this little guy kind of funny looking <laughs> yeah you know and uh <laughs> And he tells a story about Steve Buscemi uh, just going crazy at the bar or going crazy out there at the lake, as one would say. <laughs> and and that's a whole scene. I mean, that is an extended monologue. It's probably about a minute and a half, two minutes long yeah. of a character we haven't seen. We don't even really get to see his face that much. And then it moves on. And that's yeah. it. And just, you know, and it, it ends with, you know, oh, it looks like it's going to turn cold tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, there's a storm coming in. You got that right. <laughs> and just, it, it's just so, but the, and they leave in, and by the way, when the monologue's over, we're Fargo now, sorry. Um, when that monologue is over, they do have that little exchange that I just did right now about the weather. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, the monologue is over. That's, if this scene is important at all, which many people would say it isn't, I don't yeah. agree, but like, it's not, I'm, I'm not sure if I'd say it was vital, but it is important. Um, if it's vital, if it's important at all, you move on after the monologue is over. But they le- they stay for just another ten to twenty seconds while these guys talk about the weather and how yeah. it's going to turn cold. And it's and they leave it in because it creates a sense of place. This is yeah. where this this place is. This is where this story is happening. Yeah. And I feel like they do that a lot with No Country for Old Men. Yeah, I do definitely. feel like I do feel like these two movies. One is an original screenplay and one is adapted from a book. But I do mm-hmm. feel like they are. Kindred spirits. Um, yeah, you could say that. I mean, all their movies kind of are, but there these are. two especially, I think, yeah. uh, just really seem to mirror one another to a certain extent. And it's interesting because you could say that, first of all, you have in them two characters who are kind of similar in Anton Chigurh and Peter Stormare's character in Fargo. Mm-hmm. They're both ones that seem cool, calculated killers and don't seem to recognize the... the uh, uh, social implications of all that. And whereas Anton Chigurh, I think, stands almost more as a symbol for something, whereas Peter Stormare's character in Fargo is more, more of just a sociopath, I think. Yeah. A psychopath, maybe. Um, but they have kind of a similar execution. And then you have the cop who's following and, and seeing what's happening. But in um, Marge Gunderson, we're seeing more of a character who is suddenly faced with this. Mm-hmm this dark evil world who you know you could say she's been insulated in a way in this minnesota nice world yeah and suddenly sees something uh you know this outside factor comes in and suddenly you see the world is much more darker and much more uh frightening and serious and sad than you might have guessed and that's why she has that beautiful monologue when she has uh, peter stormare in the back of the cop car when she's saying like 
can't think of the words now, but when she says like, uh, didn't she, didn't everyone, anyone ever tell you there's more to life than a little yeah. money? I love that scene. Yeah. And, um, and here you are and it's a beautiful day talking about the weather again, incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's such a great end the way to end that monologue. Yeah. Oh, but, uh, but then on the other side of the coin, you see Tommy Lee Jones, who's much more hardened and has been having to deal with this type of stuff regularly. Yeah. So, uh, while he's kind of in the same position, he's further along. And so he, but he has still the same issues to deal with. And, you know, I will say that, uh, I, I'm trying, I'm going through like the, the, the backlog of, uh, Coen brothers movies I can't. Th- I don't think I can think of a filmmaker who is more consistently great at knowing how and when to end a movie. Yeah. Whether it be the iconic, you know, an iconic image at the end of Barton Fink, mm-hmm. or Miller's Crossing, Fargo, you know, two more months, you know, and then, and then No Country for Old Men. I mean, there are people who feel r- totally ripped off by that ending, but that is to me one of the most beautiful. I love that. I mean, ending. it's. It's sad, it's despairing, yet it's hopeful mm-hmm. at the same time. Like, it's just, it, it's strange. Um, I don't often tear up at movies, and certainly No Country for All Men doesn't seem like the type of movie. <laughs> Not a tearjerker yeah. in, the, in the classical sense. But there's just something so, I mean, we said that we've already said the word beautiful, and so, like, I, I don't want to use it again, but there's just something so just wonderful it just wonderfully human about that monologue there at the end and the way Tommy Lee Jones plays it is yeah. just a, just astounding where he's just talking about this dream and the dream that he, rem- he there are two of them both of them involving his father and mm-hmm. he doesn't really remember the first one he goes into a little bit of detail and then the second one he talks about you know his father in the in this dream he's sitting like at a campsite or something like that and his father, you know, goes by him on a horse, like carrying a fire. And he knows, like, well, once I get going again, my dad will be up. That like, it's there's a strange hope to that. And by the yeah. way, having not read The Road or No Country for Old Men, the idea of carrying a fire mm-hmm. uh, is something that pops up in The Road in as well. Them. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. It's just uh, in the midst of all this cynicism, and even with a character as cynical as Tommy Lee Jones, there's still like a little bit of just a little bit of hope and the hope is almost in humanity itself. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. It's if you haven't seen it and that, and by the way, like just in thinking about it for the thinking about the movie for the last few days, um, I, I've seen it relatively recently, but of course, if you think about no country for old men for any length of time, you're going to want to see it again. Yeah. I I really want to see it again right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's stop recording. You know what? Let's just hold the microphones up to the TV while we watch it. Listeners come on over. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you my address. Have a a big party and I've got some uh, propel zero grape you can have. Oh man. I have a lot. It was just a few bottles, (laughs) but, um, so so I'm. I think I'm fine with moving on. I'd like to keep this uh, relatively short. And in talking we'll about the the themes, uh, of course, uh, no way, no better way to keep it short than talk about the the themes of No Country for Old Men. So, but the companion film is one that because I had been thinking about doing talking about this film for a while, but I couldn't think of what to pair with it. And then you and I were just talking about our schedule for. Uh, for the podcast and what we wanted to do over the next couple months. 
And uh, I just threw this out there, and it worked so well that I was like, how am I? I got mad at myself for not thinking of it before. It's just like, how is it that I sit down and think about this, and I didn't arrive at it, and then I throw it out as an example of the kind of thing we could pair with it, and it's the perfect example. Uh, And it is uh, David Fincher's film Seven, uh, made in 1995, uh, which is a film that I saw in the theater. What's that? I would only be 13. Yes, you're right. I am too young to have seen that film uh, in the theater. Uh, but that's the thing about having an older brother is uh, he wants to see it and it becomes kind of this cool thing that two of you can do together. So I went and saw Seven, this grisly, horrific film at age 13. I think it's fine. I think, you know. Meanwhile, I was at home watching Gilligan's Island. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there was that one, you know, that one very uh, controversial episode where, yeah. you know, Ginger's head winds up in a box. Do, do you know the uh, the odd but maybe true connection between Seven and Gilligan's Island? What's that? The, there's some, some guy who came up with a theory that uh, all of the characters from Gilligan's Island represent one of the seven deadly sins. Oh, you know what? I've heard that. Because there's seven of them. Okay, well, let's see here. There's a couple easy ones. Um, Mr. Howell's Greed. greed. I can't think of what that one would be. (laughs) You know what? It might be The Millionaire. You know what? I think it's that one. The Millionaire? Yeah. Um, And is... Is it Vanity, or what's what's the one... What's the actual name of the... I think it's I think it's vanity. I don't have them in front of me. I should have written them down. Sorry, everybody. There's a here's there's an acronym for it, which is pale gas, P A L E G A S. But I can never remember which are which. Okay, there's pride, envy, lust. We can do this off mic. And now that I think about it, uh, <laughs> listeners, you can you can email us if you if you uh, send us send us your list of who you think of Gilligan's Island yeah. are the. Uh, uh, And yes, we are including the Harlem Globetrotters. (laughs) So, okay. So, yeah. uh, Seven I saw when I was very young, and it uh, left an impression on me, as it does everybody that sees it. Um, It is another example of what I'm talking about. Uh, A film that, pretty cut and dry, uh, a very eccentric, a very unique Serial killer, and then these two cops. One black, one white, one seasoned, one not. You know, like, it really does... I um, I believe uh, I was talking with a friend of the show, John uh, Sean Richardson, uh, about the film, and he mentioned that, uh, that for a while in Hollywood, because the screenplay was kicking around a little bit, for a while uh, it was going to appro- be approached as a sort of lethal weapon film. Really? Like, have that tone to it, where, you know, there's a uh, a villain who, his theme is the seven deadly sins, and it, and so, oh, we gotta stop him. Not unlike the uh, Scorpio in um, uh, Dirty Harry. You know, they took a real-life, very disturbing, not that not that seven is based on a real life guy, but they take something that is actually quite grisly and disturbing and turn it into this popcorn, uh, easily <laughs> digestible, uh, you know, mainstream fare. Uh, then they hired David Fincher. <laughs> well, and it's, and I think, I think there are a couple different versions of the script floating around. And I really? think Brad Pitt, uh, sort of championed the one that, that they wound up using. So yeah. good for him. Uh, but yeah, seven, 
is sort of the film that put David Fincher on the map. He had done one, he had done Alien Three at that point, a film that was largely considered to be an absolute disaster, and I agree. Um, and one that he distanced himself from pretty much immediately. Hmm. Uh, but Seven is the one that said, hey, who's this guy with this terrifying view of the world? <laughs> uh, and then he would go on to make the game. And then Fight Club is what established him as, as he's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, the story of Seven, for those that don't know, and I'm sure you've probably seen it already, but... Uh, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are a couple of uh, homicide detectives in Los Angeles, I think. It's Los Angeles or New, or New York. I'm sorry. It's been a while since I've seen it. I'm pretty sure it's Los Angeles. Okay. Because I feel like... Because uh, there are way more movies that, to talk about how terrible Los Angeles is than well, New York. Well, that's, that's true. But I feel like the where I'm thinking of the climax happening seems oh, yeah, like a very have, Yeah, LA that couldn't place. happen in New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, so I think it's I think it's Los Angeles. So... Uh, so it's these two homicide detectives who, uh, they, they find a very large man, a very fat man who has, it seems he has eaten himself to death. Uh, his stomach has exploded and they think that's a very strange thing. And then they see that he has been shackled and they immediately realize, oh, this man was fed to death. And so they think that is uh, really awful. And then they start to notice other crimes that seem to have a, a through line. And the through line is the seven deadly sins. Mm. Okay, so we've, we've looked them up. We've got wrath, pride, gluttony, sloth, lust, envy, and greed. And so uh, somebody in the city is targeting people who's who he has decided is sinful in one of these ways and mm-hmm. then he will kill them in a way that is a reference to that yeah um, i believe the character refers to turning the sin against itself um this is not unlike by the way uh, a film called the abominable dr fibes <laughs> with uh, vincent price who uses uh, who kills people uh, with the theme of the ten plagues of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so each death has a certain theme to it. Like, oh, this guy's face is eaten by locusts. That one's pretty obvious. <laughs> but um, It's like a theme restaurant, yeah. but with death instead of food. Right. Why would you want to go there? I don't know. It's going to catch on. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uh, like in Futurama, the suicide booth. You know, sooner or later, <laughs> if you're like... I'll everything, take it. You know, everything catches on eventually. Please judge me based on uh, the things that I've done. Yes, I'll have one of those <laughs> and a side of fries. Gluttony, you say? So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a very basic story, but it's made. First off, I think it's it's very well directed. Uh, David Fincher does have a clear view of. Uh, a, f- a clear vision of the world uh, yeah. in that that he would also have in Fight Club, which is uh, ugly. I mean, it's a very ugly view, but yeah. and even though I think it's cleaned up, you see, I think you still see it in the Social Network too. Like, yeah, the Social Network's more uh, it's a little slick, uh, sterile, I guess. But yeah, um, it still has this kind of dark undercurrent which is yeah. i think that's one of the reasons that that movie works so well yeah and i feel like to me even stands out more than 
like a fight club or a seven or a girl yeah. with a dragon tattoo. It's because they took someone who makes these movies that are so like gritty and, and gnarly with, mm-hmm. with that view of the world and put it in this, uh, this very like clean Harvard, uh, business world. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's one of those combinations that you don't expect to work like two foods that you wouldn't think would go together. And suddenly you're like, Oh, then, well, and when you that think works. about it, there is not much in the social network that takes place during the day. Yeah. You know, because he's dealing with a world of people who stare. It, this I don't mean this uh, to be like a, a negative thing, but people who spend all day staring at computer screens, really daylight is not something they're that interested in. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting that uh, that if the film has villains, it's the guys that are actually kind of physical and are willing to be outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but no, I, if I had to choose, I don't want this to be a, a referendum on the, you know, the career of David Fincher any more than we want to talk about the career of the Coen brothers. But mm. uh, my favorite one of his films is probably Zodiac. I think Zodiac is, Zodiac is, is a great movie pretty too, much yeah. brilliant. I might throw that, I might throw that one into the perfect category that I was talking about uh, mm. with No Country for Old Men. That's also a 2007, which is one of the best, not the best movie year of all time. I maintain that 1999 is the best movie year of all time just by virtue of how many amazing Hollywood-changing movies, if not life-changing for the audience, uh, there were uh, that year. But 2007 is probably the best movie year since then. Um, I, I, yeah, you can maybe say that. And so, like, you get No Country, uh, There Will Be Blood, and Zodiac, just those three at the very least, all in the same year, you got yourself a good year. You throw yourself in uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. You throw yourself in a Ratatouille, which I know I like more than some. Michael Clayton's pretty good. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Atonement. I don't really like Juno. But, you know, can't win them all. Hey. But uh, and there and there are many others, by the way. But I won't mm-hmm. go into that right now. So, uh, but seven is really what what started it. Uh, it does make sense in many ways that David Fincher would direct an alien film. Uh, I'd be fascinated. I, I kind of wish they would have him direct one now. Hmm. Now that he, now that the studio would let him do what he wants to do, and now that the effects are a little better. At the time, they were using some blue screen stuff, and it just uh, uh, does not look good. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but I feel like I don't hate it as much as everyone else did, because there are a few moments that I can remember that I feel like the aesthetic stuck with me so much. Mm-hmm. They must have been affecting in some way. Like I remember particularly one guy getting like pulled up into the roof when he's like wrapped in, in all this plastic tarp thing. And uh, That's two different things. One guy gets his head ripped off, through uh like the plastic curtain in the yeah. infirmary a different guy gets pulled up into the ceiling in front of everybody that's two separate things mm. but both of them are very interesting yeah um and yes it's i actually don't hate the movie i just think that it was limited any any problem that i have with it is i'm willing to say is studio based on studio involvement whether it be at the script level or whatever. Because I do feel like l- what I do remember of later on in the movie is that it it felt kind of thrown together, and I don't remember the plot exactly making sense. But I think I remember liking the first half. Again, haven't seen it for a long time. so. Yeah. Um, but I'm getting us off topic. Sorry about that. That's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so, Seven is also... I think Brad Pitt was already fairly well-established... To a certain extent, and then 95 comes along, 
and he was the lead in seven and is given several good scenes, not the least of which is the last scene of the film, which it requires him to do stuff that very few actors are required to do. Mm. I mean, it's, it's pretty intense stuff. And there are people who actually have kind of made fun of, of, of like, Oh, what's in the box. And it's just like, try to imagine yourself in that circumstance. I have to assume your emotions might be running a little wild too. Like, and you might deliver a line. You might talk in kind of a strange way. I don't even consider it that strange. No, Um, there's an intensity there that absolutely should be there. And the movie earns and Brad Pitt earns. Um, but between this and then he was also nominated in 95 for 12 Monkeys for Supporting Actor. Oh, that's right. And so, I completely uh, forgot that was the same year. Yeah. That's another movie I'd like to revisit. But incidentally, he lost to Kevin Spacey for The Usual Suspects. Kevin Spacey <laughs> played the character of John Doe, the killer in Seven. So, uh, and And this... Certainly, usual suspects as well. But Kevin Spacey was a character actor that was, you know, kicking around town for a long time. I think the most, you know, he'd been in Glengarry Glen Ross, but many would say he was, at least in the minds of most people, overshadowed by the rest of that cast. Yeah, he was, and he was a supporting character in that for sure. Uh, And then, and then uh, he is very, very good in a movie called The Ref. Uh, that's, that ostensibly is supposed to be a vehicle for Dennis Leary, and then Dennis Leary, who is not that good of a comedian and not that great of an actor, although he's gotten better since then, uh, has the movie stolen away from him by uh, <laughs> Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis as a bickering married couple. It's really, really good. Uh, but yeah, Kev- and so this kind of announced Kevin Spacey because, I mean, when you when you hear when you first hear his voice on the phone as the killer talking to the detectives. I mean, it is quite chilling. Yeah. Um, he does. While I do think Kevin Spacey can be a little over the top at times, sometimes the character lends itself to that. And when it does, I mean, I can't think of anybody better. I love him in L.A. Confidential. I think he's great in The Usual Suspects. Just when he gets a character who who is just a little bit heightened, uh, he's he's the guy you want. So so with Seven, it's. There's an intensity that it's a very grisly film. It is a very gory film. I mean, there are some people who would say that it's along the lines of The Silence of the Lambs, where I consider that to be a suspense thriller, but there are people who consider it horror. Yeah. And they say that Seven kind of has that quality as well. No, I'd agree with that. Um, And so I don't want to go into too much detail, but um, I've seen Seven twice. (laughs) Once in the theater... And then I held off for a while. And then I saw it again, I'm going to say probably eight or nine years ago. Um, and I was, oh, it was probably eight years ago because I was engaged at the time. Oh. And I'm somebody who listeners know I already get a little paranoid about my wife's safety. <laughs> and then I see that movie, I was like, well, I think I've seen this enough, right? <laughs> but in thinking about this, I think at this point I'm, I'm, mature enough film goer that I can I can the film can still affect me but I can still appreciate it and so I actually uh, do want to uh, I think actually buy it at this point because there's a lot of stuff I really like in the movie do you like Seven do you actually uh, I'm not sure if enjoy is the right word but do you appreciate Seven I think I'd say the same thing you're saying there's a lot of stuff I like in the movie Mm -hmm. it's it's not one that I'm clamoring to watch very often yeah um 
But I feel like it is one where the the themes are interesting. Yeah. I think that's why we've chosen it today. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a transition if ever there was one. <laughs> so, um, so the themes that we wanted to talk about there are there are several, and they need to go in a specific kind of order. Mm. From a Christian standpoint, because what we've been talking about, as, particularly with No Country for Old Men, is Tommy Lee Jones just looking at the events, the events that we're looking that that we're seeing. And just, just looking at it with disbelief, but also a certain emotional disconnect that he seems to think is necessary for him to be able to go on living and go yeah. back to his wife, you know, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And so, uh, something that I've I've thought a lot about um, in the last few years, um, as I've, I guess we'll go with this. Years ago. There was a news story in which, I think it was up in Canada, in which this 20-year-old kid happened to be on a Greyhound bus, and he happened to be seated next to a guy that was crazy, certifiably crazy. The guy is uh, in the, in like an asylum now, a mental hospital is probably what they say now. Um, I think they call it a nut house. The old nut house. That's yeah. a, the funny farm. Yeah. Uh, so this kid just happened to be seated on the bus next to this guy, and this guy killed the kid, and like everybody ran off the bus, and then the police like surrounded the bus, and this guy was in there, uh, and he had done he did like horrible things to the kid's body. And I remember, and then like, you hear also, by the way, like recently about the quote unquote zombie apocalypse. Oh yeah. About in which one homeless guy who I believe was naked and like just, I think just out of his mind on drugs was like, I believe, and I'm sorry to even put it in these terms. I, I, I want to try and keep this not sensationalistic but was eating the face of another homeless person who was alive at the time and is still alive. Yeah. And the, they wound up having to, to kill the, uh, the, the crazy one. Um, and it's interesting, uh, specifically with the, uh, the, the latter story that I've, that I've just told. I mean, I mentioned the zombie apocalypse. Now that's not the first thing I thought but if you were online, if you were online that day, you got all kinds of people talking about like, oh, here we go, zombie apocalypse. Like they would say all this. And it's just, and I remember just being like, that was a person who got his face eaten by another person. And while, yes, that may seem like something in a movie, it's not a movie. It's real life. Mm-hmm. And when I heard about, I'm not even going to, I know what was done to that 20-year-old kid's body on that bus, but I'm not going to say it because it's, it's just so horrifying. And I remember there was something about that story that just kind of, this was, I think, I think about six years ago, and it just kind of, I was kind of gripped by it a little bit. And I looked, I looked up the kid's name, and I looked up his face, his uh, I, at the time MySpace page, mm. and he, he had one. You know, he was age twenty. He probably had one, and so he had one. And you just see like all these, 
messages from his friends saying like it's a terrible thing what happened to you we, you know we love you we're going to miss you that kind of thing and it just really I, I wouldn't say I was jaded by it but like there was something about that story that just and and the sensationalistic aspect of it and then it just got me thinking about all the other stories that I that aren't sensationalistic but still result in someone saying I love this person and I miss them it just so I know that's kind of a, a strange thing to think but um and then it just got me thinking about my own reaction to these types of things, these types of stories. And that's one of the reasons why No Country for Old Men is so fascinating to me is because we see Tommy Lee Jones' reactions to these terrible things. And we know he's seen his his fair share. I mean, yeah. by the time the movie has started, he's already seen all kinds of things, including he tells his own story of like a young guy who kills... Uh, a young girl and just says, I was always going to do this. I was always planning on it. Yeah. And just saying like, I, I don't know how to react to that. Yeah. And then I, I remember that particular cause that's, that's both, I think that's the opening uh, narration to the yes. movie. Is that correct? And yes. it's also the, it's the very beginning of the book. And I remember that being striking and particularly one phrase where I, I think he says they were sending the guy to the electric chair and he it says, he said he was new and he knew he was going to hell. He'd be there. He knew he'd be there in about 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's just... Mm. It's chilling. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if... And and I've also become really fascinated by politics lately. And you can follow politics, and I'm mostly interested in, like, elections and, and that sort of thing. But once you start becoming interested in elections, then you start following the candidates, and then you follow their positions on certain, like say foreign policy issues and then you start looking into foreign policy and then you start to look into wars and atrocities that are happening in other in other countries and even some that are happening here and and it's so it's very easy to become kind of cynical when you see just how awful the world is and from a christian standpoint the word is fallen uh, you know, we've talked about this before that this is that we live in a world that is that has rebelled against God and the goodness of God. And so I guess this is going to be mostly for uh, the Christians that listen to this, but uh, non-Christians, you're welcome to apply this if you like. Um, you know, how do we respond to a fallen world? You know, when we are holding ourselves up to a certain standard, that being a, a godly standard, and we have to try to rise above it, um, but we still have to live in it, you know. Um, yeah. And just to expound on, on fall, on a, mm -hmm. fall on a little bit, inherent in that is the idea that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It's not just that this is the way it is, this is, you know, the natural progression of things. It's that the world is not meant to be like this. God right. created it a different way. He created it uh, perfect um, and created people innocent. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all of this, all of this, you know, the atrocities and the terrible things that we see in the world are not the way that they're not. It's not the world that we're meant to live in. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons that we are so upset by it, I think. Right. So we, but it's not as though like only Christians look at the 
things around us and say this is bad i mean no, you don't no. have to be that no i think it's I, it's inherent in people and i think uh, i mean i feel like it's i wonder more for someone who's a non-christian like why why you would say that people become so upset by atrocities like this if this is the natural progression of things right like if i mean there are some people who you know with with a certain degree of of cynicism would say like well hey you know it's just a dog eat dog world but then they're also upset by that and and some people would say that like a cynic is like a frustrated idealist like somebody who wants things to be a certain way and it isn't and so to sort of safeguard themselves from the disappointment and the heartbreak they put up this this wall between them and and the world around them uh but we'll actually get to that uh a little bit later so in these movies no country for old men and seven we see various responses to the world uh, various philosophical responses that then inform characters' actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Anton Chigurh, as I said, he's not unlike the Joker in The Dark Knight, in that there is a philosophy uh, behind what he does. And he reveals it in, I believe, one sentence. He really doesn't go into a lot more detail elsewhere. Whereas the Joker, I mean, he comes out and says it. Yeah. And that's not bad. Uh, it makes sense that the Joker, who's, who is kind of a performer, that he would put his put that stuff out there. Whereas Anton Chigurh, who's kind of lives quietly by this code, would would keep his cards you know close to the chest a little bit. So uh, he is talking to a man that he is about to kill, and he says, "If if the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule?" And the idea being, like, I'm about to kill you. Like, you you did things right, and yet here you are about to die by my hand. I didn't follow any rules, and I'm about to win between the two of us. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be his philosophy, this idea of sort of embracing the, the randomness and the meaninglessness of it all. And yeah. the, one could say the nihilism of it all. That yeah. you look around the world and he sees no meaning. And so he chooses to be a part of that. Yeah. And that's, it's worth noting that he will regularly flip a coin to determine somebody's fate. Yeah. Um, and that is somebody who embraces randomness. Yeah. And so, so he looks at the world and was possibly driven insane by it. And chooses to just become another part of it. Uh, another part of the bad aspect of it. Then you get John Doe from Seven. Now, he is a little bit more like the Joker in that he will he will give his opinion. Yeah, because he... Uh, both of those characters want to draw a little more attention to themselves. Yeah. Um, like we talked before on, on uh, our Villains episode about... A lot of villains being inherently selfish, and I yeah. think these are two that definitely uh, uh, the Joker and John Doe, not Sugar and John Doe. Right. So uh, there is a um, there's a couple lines that I'll quote from John Doe. Um, I will be uh, censoring one and using a different word. So only in a world this crappy could you even try to say these people were innocent and keep a straight face. But that's the point. We see a deadly sin on every street corner, in every home, and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's common. It's trivial. We tolerate it morning, noon, and night. Well, not anymore. I'm setting the example. What I've done is going to be puzzled over and studied and followed forever. So that's one line that he says. And that does sort of, to a certain extent, go to what you're talking about of 
I'm going to be puzzled over like a, right. a certain selfishness. Yeah. Um, but moving on, uh, he also says, there's nothing wrong with a man taking pleasure in his work. I won't deny my own personal desire to turn each sin against the sinner. And I made reference to that earlier. So John Doe, he looks at the world and judges it. Now, I'm sure there are some people listening to this and say, well, aren't Christians the one that judge it? You know, don't Christians say that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And I would say you're right, but that's not necessarily how it should be. Well, yeah. And And that we're not judging based on our own criteria. Um, What were you about to say? Well, I was about to say also pointing out that something is wrong or saying that we believe something is wrong is Mm -hmm. different than judging. And that's a a distinction that I think needs to be made more often because um, judgment a lot... Uh, actually, our pastor did a very good sermon on on judgment fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's one we could post. I don't remember how long ago it was, but uh, um, he talked a lot about what that kind of means and how that happens and why it's wrong and the ways that we see it in our lives. Um, uh, because a lot of it... it boils down to how you react to thinking that someone is doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And this is this is an extreme version of it, but if Jesus says to us, if you've hated someone in your heart, then that's... If you've hated someone, then you've murdered them in your heart. Mm-hmm. And If you look on a, on a woman with lust, then it's as if you've committed the act. Right, exactly. Yes. And so... Uh, if, if that's the way that Jesus looks at things, if we as Christians hate someone because of something wrong, even if it's because of something that they seriously are wrong about, even if it's because of a sin that they have committed, if we are, if our attitude towards that person is hateful, we're in essence doing the same thing that John Doe does. And I do want to uh, go back to the idea of judgment and help try to define what that is. And I'll go back to something that we've talked about before. When you think of what a judge is, the term judging or judgment is not inherently bad. Hmm. It's we think of it as bad when we think of other people doing it, because when we think of a judge, he is somebody who is who is presiding over a trial, but the circumstances of the trial and the outcome of the trial do not affect him. He is above it all. Hmm. He is not, he doesn't have to defend. He doesn't have to prosecute. He's not the one on trial. He is the one who makes sure it goes well, and he's the one who determines the punishment. He's not involved. And if he's not involved in this particular in a particular case, then that means he is... Uh, I've said it already. He's above it. And so if a person is judging, uh, then the reason that we've taken to say that that is a negative thing is because it's like, oh, it's like, you you can't judge me. What they're really saying is, you're not above me. You're not mm-hmm. better than me. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of people, I know I've done it, I'm sure you've done it, like, where you say, that person's wrong, and we do it with the attitude of, we're better than they are, and we could never do what they've done. Yeah. And that's judgment, and that's a bad kind of judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but when people say, like, well, you got to use good judgment, well, like, that means assessing things, removing yourself from it, and determining what is the right thing to do. So the term judging and judgment is not inherently bad. It's only bad when somebody who's very much in the thick of it, like the rest of us, somehow thinks that they are above it. 
And so I wanted to talk about that really quick because it is a word that gets bandied about maybe a little too casually. Yeah. And whereas merely saying, well, I believe this to be wrong. What they're saying is, I think that's wrong for you. I think it's wrong for me. I think it's wrong for everybody. I don't put myself above you. I, what, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I'm the gander and you're the goose. Um, <laughs> so, so I wanted to, to specify that a little bit. So John Doe, he looks at the world and he sees people who are doing things wrong in his eyes and often legally. Um, and he... And he does judge because if he wasn't judging them, you know, only out of a place of judgment can you murder somebody uh, out of a uh, sense of superiority, you know? And so, like, oh, this is what they have coming. Like, oh, this guy's really fat, so I'm going to kill him. (laughs) You know, like, that is, that's judgment, you know? It's extreme. And so, John Doe looks at the world and he also kills people in a very grisly way, not unlike Anton Chigurh, but he does it for a different reason. But it's interesting because both the man who looks at, looks at the world around him and probably condemns it, but also realizes that he can't do anything about it, so he might as well be a part of it, he winds up doing no good and being just as bad. The man who looks at the world and says it's terrible and I want to be better than that and I want to punish it, he winds up making the world a worse place. So it's interesting that these two people definitely have an opinion about the world around them, but the the conclusion that they've come to caused them to make it worse, not better. And so, at the very least, we shouldn't be that. But also, I, I, I think that we're not really in any danger. Uh, well, in, in theory, we're always in danger of becoming that, but my guess is you're probably not on the verge of going and murdering your fat neighbor. You know, or or we something like that. certainly hope not. If if you are, uh, email us. Maybe we can talk about it first. Email Josh. All right. Yeah, you can throw. He'll forward it on to me. You can CC Tyler. <laughs> exactly. Um, but what I wanted to talk about more was the idea of of cynicism and and being kind of jaded. Um, being a uh, Tom Lee Jones character's name is Ed Tom Bell, and while I don't think his character is so cynical that he doesn't care anymore. Uh, he clearly, as I've said, has sort of put up a wall mm-hmm. uh, between him and the events. Like he he sort of makes jokes a little bit here and there, uh, posi- you know, as a defense mechanism. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But just everything he does, he seems to just distance himself uh, emotionally from what's going on. And he does want to make a difference. But I do think he is on his way to becoming a very cynical person. Uh, yeah. And he talks to another old timer, uh, a guy named, uh character's name is Ellis. He's played by Barry Corbin. And he says, he's like, you can't stop what's coming, you know? And he's making reference to things just getting worse. That's the it yeah. uh, that he's referring to. And so, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk about the theme of cynicism uh, a little bit. Um, and, I found uh, various quotes about it, but before we get to those, um, I will turn to my co-host, who hasn't left. He's still here. Josh. I'm here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Um, how would you define cynicism? Sorry, I didn't tell you beforehand I was going to be asking <laughs> you to do this. 
Uh, I'm I'm usually not good at things like this. Uh, well, I think you said before during the episode, maybe you said it before the episode, but that it's been said that a a, a cynic is a type of idealist or a frustrated idealist. Frustrated maybe. idealist, yeah. Um, and I feel like that's a pretty good, uh, good definition. I, I feel like it's someone who does remove themselves from the, from the situations around them, um, and, uh, tr- tries to comment on the problems that they see without... seeing themselves as any part of that same world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they try to remain tellingly uninvested mm-hmm. in the things that happen around them because then they don't actually like risk anything. They don't risk being hurt or disappointed yeah. or anything like that. Um, so yeah, they kind of hold themselves back from it. Or, or if you go with the uh, the hipster example, they, they don't like any band because you never know if you're going to find someone who's going to out-hipster you and be like, oh, you still like... right whatever bullets for roses i'm making up a dumb band oh, name. okay <laughs> um that's a good band name by the way in the sense that like you said that i was like is that a real band i feel like i wouldn't <laughs> like them um but uh so i do have i do have a uh, a quote here it's uh abridged it's from a website that i that i like quite a bit um, but I've only recently discovered. Uh, it's called Faith and Geekery. Um, I will try to put a, uh, a link to it in this post. Oh, and uh, side note, everybody. I realize that uh, I, I've been kind of remiss in the last few episodes. Usually I'll do uh, a little episode breakdown of what you can find at what time within the episode. Uh, I haven't done that lately. I'm going to go back and do it for the last few episodes, and I'll do it for this one as well. So I apologize, everybody, for that. So uh, this is a rather extended quote, uh, and it was written by Justin. I don't know his last name, and he writes for Faith and Geekery. Uh, he sa- he has a lot of good things in here, and so I don't want you to think that it is my sa- that it's me saying it. It is it is Justin. So here we go, and again, this is part of a larger article that I am uh, in which he. <laughs> I should say this because it won't make it, this a little section. Of this won't make any sense. Oh yeah. Um, when Conan O'Brien uh, lost the Tonight Show, he talked about being cynical and that he doesn't like cynicism. Uh, it's his least favorite trait in a person. And so uh, this is Justin's response to Conan O'Brien's um, comments. Uh, he says, cynicism is deceptive. You get to look deep, damaged, insightful, at least initially, and wise with minimal effort. Everyone knows there are problems with this world, and those who tend to resort to cynicism are the first to sound the alarm. Part of that is because cynicism is easy. It takes little talent to assume the worst about people and things. It's not hard to find another way... It's not hard to find another way to accuse rich people of being greedy, lawyers of being crooked, women of being manipulative, men of being pigs, or businessmen of being evil. Anyone can do this. Even if you point the finger back at yourself once in a while, being cynical does nothing to take corrective steps. 
So what are our options? Despite pleas from people like Conan, we know rich people can be greedy, lawyers can be self-centered, and businessmen can be evil. As Christians, how do we combat the desire to give in to this popular mindset? The first thing is to think about how Jesus looked at people. He talked to an adulterous woman and knew her ugly secrets before she mentioned them. He knew that the innocent-sounding questions were sometimes a trap. He knew his closest friends would abandon or disown him, and that those who shouted Hosanna would soon call for his death. Still, he wept for them all, praying for his father. Uh, sorry, praying to his father that those who deserted him at his arrest would be sanctified. In Jesus, we see one who is aggressively hopeful when cynicism would be the easiest route. The second thing is to see that the opposite of cynicism is discernment. When I was younger, I took discernment to mean that you could tell what was wrong with the church or a current situation. Discernment means that you needed to tell people what was wrong with everything. Now I think discernment has much to do with knowing what is right about people, when few others are trying to. If you are finding the good, you are becoming discerning just as much as when you are finding the bad. With learning how to discern comes wisdom, which I believe is also the opposite of cynicism. It's all about balance, and both the cynical and the blissfully ignorant can lack this. So um, I really like that uh, that little passage there. Um, mm. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of intelligence in there, um, and it does kind of go. I was thinking about this recently, and I want to touch on it very briefly. Um, there are some people who say that you can't have light without the dark, that you can't have good without the bad. Um, I've, I've heard people say that, and it's something that fascinates me, that attitude. Um, and it, it is kind of a cynical attitude. I was like, you know, if there was all good, then, you know, people would just get used to it. You know, it would become boring, and so there has to be some bad. And, this, and, and you run across this when people talk about the idea of heaven being boring, whereas hell is a party, and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the heaven and hell thing aside, I will say like, I don't think that's actually true. Darkness is the absence of light. It's not the other way around. You know, it's not like, like if you're in a room that is, that there's no, and it's dark, all the stuff is still there. It doesn't go away because the light is gone. It's not like they're two com- completely separate worlds and, you know, light is not the absence of darkness. It is the other way around. And so, like, if you use a, f- a phrasing like that, it's like, well, you know, hey, you, you have to have darkness, you know, otherwise uh, the light would get boring. You, you know, if, if things weren't so bad, then the good would seem boring. It's like, well, not necessarily. I don't think so. Um, that's, just a, that's just a side note, something that I, that I thought of as I was reading through this, mm-hmm. um, through this uh, quote. Uh, there is another quote by Thornton Wilder, who's a writer that I love. He wrote uh, uh, Our Town, and he wrote a play that I was in in high school that I love called The Skin of Our Teeth. Do you want to read it? Sure. I've been talking for a while. All right, here So this goes. is a quote by Thornton Wilder. Josh, take us away. <laughs> Thornton Wilder says, Hope is a projection of the imagination. So is despair. Despair all too readily embraces the ills it foresees. Hope is an energy and arouses the mind to explore every possibility to combat them. In response to hope, the imagination is, the imagination is aroused to picture every possible issue, to try every door, to fit together even the most heterogeneous pieces in the pu- sorry heterogeneous pieces in the puzzle. All right. So, so we're headed. Uh, we're in the uh, we're on the home stretch here. 
headed down the home stretch. Uh, so cynicism, what what uh, Justin and Thornton Wilder are talking about, <laughs> kindred spirits, those guys, um, is that the thing about cynicism is that it may, you might look cool, you might look insightful, and you can be detached and all that, but when it comes right down to it, the cynic is not, they may not be making things worse, but they're not making anything better. And as Christians, we're called to try to make things better, even in the face of terrible circumstances um i often invoke jeremiah uh on this uh podcast um because he was called to speak the truth even though nobody was listening Mm -hmm. and and what's more god God knew no one was listening in fact people only hated him more but he had to keep going he had to keep saying the truth um if not for the benefit of those people then for the benefit of us yeah. And that sort of thing. So, and there's countless other biblical characters who don't have a happy ending. I mean, mm-hmm. even even some of the the major figures like uh, John the Baptist doesn't have a very happy ending. David doesn't have a very happy ending. Like, there's yeah. a lot of uh, even though they did great things for God, they don't all like end with a triumphant recognition of their goodness and then you know, have a peaceful death and float gently into heaven to be happy forevermore. (laughs) And, you know, it's, it is possible to be cynical about yourself and say, well, I know how bad I am. Mm -hmm. And thus I couldn't, there's nothing I could possibly do to help such and such a situation. And so I won't even try because I will quote Homer Simpson, trying is the first step towards failure. (laughs) Um, It's a funny quote, but I wonder how many of us, myself included, sometimes use that as a uh, as a justification. Like if I try this thing, I will fail and I will be worse off because I will know that I can't do that thing. Yeah. Um, Where Thornton Wilder's here talking about the difference between despair and hope. Uh, the cynic is is more the person who embraces despair yeah. instead of hope, whether it be because of the the fear of hoping for something that uh, you you know you don't know if it'll happen, yeah, or uh, the 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 idea that that it's foolish to hope for something because yeah. the world is a bad place. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will say now, of course, uh, we are headed this way. And uh, we've got several more things to read, So, and they're all pretty long, so I apologize in advance. But, uh, but, so we're headed down the, down the path of hope here, and that being really the one thing that we have, the one major weapon that we have against cynicism, but also against a, a, falling, a fallen world. Like, if you have hope, then that means you can engage with that world, and you might make life better, even if it's just for one person. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you, that's a thing you can do. Like, the cynic would say, like, I'm just one person. There's nothing I can do in the grand scheme of things. Whereas somebody with hope will engage even if it, even if it means they might become frustrated idealists, even if something that they're trying for doesn't happen, they still have that hope, and it's because our hope is in Christ. Um, that is something that doesn't go away. We can put our hope in any number of things on this earth. They could all go away at some point, but our hope in Christ does not go away. That is something that I talked about during my testimony and in my mo- my own moments of despair and depression. Like it's it's the one thing that kept me going, and even if I wasn't feeling it, I had. 
I had to think it. I had to make myself think it. Like it is, there's a certain degree of discipline to hope. At, whereas, you know, as uh, as Justin said on Faith and Geekery, cynicism is easy. Hope is very difficult. Yeah. Um, and so I do want to uh, read some, some quotes now. Uh, this is a monologue by Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings. This is specifically from The Two Towers. And this is probably the monologue that, by the way, I think this is the monologue that summarizes the whole of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> and it is the one that makes The Two Towers my favorite of the films. Uh, so uh, there will be a moment in here where I say, Mr. Frodo, <laughs> so, uh, but I will not try to perform this. I'm just going to read it. That's fine. Uh, it's like in the great stories, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger, they were... For, uh, sorry, I forget that uh, he does this with an Irish accent. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I, now, I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something, that there's some, that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Uh, that idea of it being worth fighting for, we'll come back to that. But, you know, I feel like for those that are fans of uh, Lord of the Rings, I mean, this is, this is what it's all about, is even when things look absolutely hopeless. Mm-hmm. And you do find characters who are over, overwhelmed by despair. Yeah. And they, and it's worth noting that they often make things worse, yeah. either by inactivity or because their hopelessness starts to starts to inform their actions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a character named Oh, great! I know this character's name. I've met the actor who played him. He's played by John Noble, but he's uh, Boromir and Faramir's uh, father. Oh, yeah. But yeah, now I don't remember his name, even though he was one of my favorite characters in the in in the whole film. Yeah, and I'll think of it, of course. I feel like it started with an H. Mm, was it Harold? I think what it was, was Harold. It? Hector. You know what? It was absolutely Hector. There's no question about it. Um, I'm glad we got that settled. <laughs> so, when Hector from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> So, uh, but that's a character who loses one son, thinks he loses another, sees that he's surrounded by armies, and completely loses uh, his loses his hope. Yeah. Now, it should be noted that I think in the book, uh, he does not lose his hope, but he just becomes overwhelmed by depression, which is like a different thing. But in the film, he just gives into it. Like I said, hope takes work, despair does not. Yeah. And by the way, if you are somebody who is feeling despair over your circumstances, I don't mean to say that you're lazy or anything. Right, right. Um, you know, I don't want to, because I realize saying something like what I just said uh, is not helpful. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that uh, in a moment. So, uh, hope is... Denethor. Denethor, that's right. I knew there was a TH in there. Okay, Denethor, that's that, right. That H Steward I was thinking of, of is, is, is second... Sorry, third from the end of the word. That's where I got it. I see. Moving on. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, like it is, it's like this active working hope that informs like the things that we do. 
And so uh, we have a couple of uh, we have a couple of Bible, uh, extended Bible verses to read. Uh, we will we will uh, split them up here. So the first is Romans twelve nine through twenty one. Uh, Josh, would you like to take that one? Yes. Okay. It starts on uh, that second page there. It starts with love must be sincere. That's the one. Oh, it is. Okay. Broke that up a lot. I'm Okay. Anyway, um, Romans says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay. So I I have to laugh a little bit because this is this is a verse that I think of all the time, but uh, but I wonder at my my own uh, uh, at, at my motivation for it and even Paul's motivation in telling people the the heaping burning coals on somebody's head, yeah. um, <laughs> like it, it's a great metaphor. But part of me wonders, like, did he even then have to be like? To, to use the the desire for revenge to get people to not yeah <laughs> act, take on vengeful actions be like don't worry this will get the burning coals on their heads yeah i don't know it's it almost it seems like it understands human nature yeah where it's like you want to know the best way to really make this guy angry <laughs> is to not let this affect you and actually to love him it's like oh then i'm really gonna stick it to him by giving him this money <laughs> you know um yeah it is something that i've always found funny but uh but yeah, this uh, this larger passage I think is a nice blueprint for what we're talking about by not letting, you know, not letting your spirits dim uh, when they very much can. Uh, you know, it says never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Uh, you know, bless those who persecute you. Like I mean, and when we say that hope is difficult, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. Like you. Revenge is easy. There have been a lot of movies made about revenge and how it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and, but people want to do it. They want to settle the score. They want to get even, but they never, it never works out. It always exacts a price uh, on your soul. And whereas, you know, it's like at the very end, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It doesn't say lay down to evil. It doesn't even say meet evil with good. It says overcome evil with good. Yeah. And I think that's where, like, overcome is is a, it's not like a fighting type word, but it's one that is, I think, loaded with meaning. You know, it's almost like, it's almost like that idea. It's like, oh, we're going to fight fire with fire. It's like, well, if you fight it with water, you'll win. <laughs> and, the, like, the fire will be out. 
<laughs> Whereas if you fight fire with fire, you're probably just going to spread the fire. Um, and so that's, that's what this is talking about. Um, I will read something from 2 Corinthians 4. This is verses 7 through 12, and then I will skip a couple of verses, uh, and I'll do 16 through 18. The verses I'm skipping, they are relevant to this, uh, but there was something in these passages specifically that I wanted to, uh, that I wanted to talk about. So, uh, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the de- to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So, one of the reasons that I wanted to like focus on these verses is, it, it does sort of give you, at the very least, an abstract kind of game plan. Like, when you are met with stuff in your own life, how, how you can try to meet it. And you're not always going to, you know, you're not always going to do it. Like, it's, it's, you're going to fail. It's just going to happen. But to always, but to not give up and to always keep trying and some of it doesn't some of it is beyond you like it's worth noting and we've talked about it before that it's always interesting to me people talk about the bible being out of touch and i'm sure at times christians including myself think like oh this bible has nothing to say to me but little things like if it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone like it doesn't say live at peace with everybody it says in so far as you can do it do it but sometimes it's out of your hands, you know? And so when you are met with something that is out of your hands, it might not have anything to do with you. It might just be something you're seeing on TV. In those instances, you have to focus on what is unseen. You have to focus on God's glory and heaven and his, and his kingdom because that will give you the hope that is necessary to go into this world and make a positive change. But if you only ever focus on what is seen, then I think that will start to overwhelm you. Like you have to look at, at the bigger things, um, the things that are not so easy to see. So, um, so I actually want to sum up with a line from uh, Seven, and it is actually the last line of the film. And I think it's, it's worth noting um, because I, I almost feel like this is... There's a... There's a, 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 f- a phrase that is used, and it, and it has become a, a, a popular Christian company. You'll probably see bumper stickers with uh, uh, NOTW oh, yeah. on them. I saw one of those today. Well, there you go. And so uh, NOTW stands for not of this world. And uh, that is a re- that's reference to the idea of being in the world but not of it. Uh, that means you are interacting with other people, you have a job, you're doing the things, you know, 
you're dealing with people. You can't just remove yourself from people. You are dealing with this world, but always keeping in mind that your heart belongs to God and that he is the only one that can give you your definition. He is the only one that can that can provide you with the proper strength. And when you know that, then you can be in this world and you can make a difference and it will not crush you. And and it sort of remind and it reminds me of this this quote and it is the last line of seven and it is uh, said in voiceover Morgan Freeman's character he says Ernest Hemingway once wrote the world is a fine place and worth fighting for I agree with the second part and while it seems like there's a great deal of cynicism in there I don't think so mm-hmm. I think there's a realism there there's the there's the knowledge that like this this place can be quite terrible sometimes directly in your life and sometimes in the abstract just the things that you observe but that doesn't mean we have the right to disengage because it's no it's bad it, it can be bad for everybody but we have to dis, we have to engage we have to fight for it you know and that's it's it's one of the reasons that I uh incorporated the the quote from lord of the rings you know uh people who could have turned back but they didn't because they realized that it's worth fighting for the world is a fine place and worth fighting for i i agree with the second part i would Mm. say i kind of agree with that general (laughs) sentiment um and it may seem hopeless at times but our hope is in christ and he he was in a rather hopeless situation and he stuck through it and it was a hor- it was a horrible experience i'm sure mm-hmm. but he stuck through it because it was a choice he was making and just because just because you have the ability to make a choice doesn't mean the choice is going to be easy so yeah can you think of anything you would like to add before we wrap up i mean just just sort of in what you were saying like uh, Christ does that because it's worth something because he sees it he saw it and sees it as worth something mm-hmm. it's not just uh, uh, it's it's more than just a duty um, it's more than a negative circumstance that he has to deal with um, Christ chooses to head on face the evil in the world and the evil that's specifically surrounding him and uh and act in a hopeful way towards that and that's i mean that's our model and i do want to actually uh have a brief comment that uh you know we're talking about like you know going out and fighting and that sort of thing uh but what we're talking about is fighting in love and sometimes what that means is not literally going out and fighting and like hurting people where you see wrongdoing where you see sin right. because if you're not careful you will turn into John Doe from 7. Right. Fighting could mean fighting through somebody's attitude. Yeah. It could mean fighting your urge to give up on somebody. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's that's the when it says don't don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. It doesn't mean my sword is good and it's better <laughs> than your skull. I will overcome it. You know, it's not that. Like it's 
you know sometimes it, it it could very well mean like fighting like literally fighting for somebody but chances are in the life that you're living it means these other things you know fighting against a certain attitude even if it's your own hmm. so okay so that's it for this episode i hope you guys uh enjoyed it um the next episode we're trying to put these out every tuesday um, but I'm going to be going to Comic-Con, and then I'm going to be staying in San Diego for, for a while. So the next episode will probably be a, a couple days late, and it will be about the Paul Haggis film Crash, which I know you're going to want to tune into that, because Josh and I have interesting things to say about it. Boy, do we. Um, and don't go reading ahead. Don't read Josh's blog. So you <laughs> Well, actually, go ahead and read it. That'd but, be reading behind, kind of. Yeah, I guess so. But... Um, but yeah, so that's what the next episode is going to be, and we will be pairing it with Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. So um, if you want, you can uh, take that as a homework assignment, go and watch those two movies, and then uh, you'll be ready for the next episode, which will be, again, not two weeks from today. It will be probably two weeks and two or three days uh, after that. So uh, so sorry about that. We'll do what we can to make sure it's uh, as close to the, that Tuesday as possible. Um I will say, I mentioned I'm going to be at Comic-Con. If you are going to Comic-Con or if you are in the San Diego area, uh, there's going to be a meetup. Now, officially, it is a Battleship Pretension meetup. But, as it happens, I also host more than one lesson. <laughs> and so, and so you, can, uh, you can treat it as that if you want, if you want to come and, and talk to me. And there is a possibility that Josh will be there as well. So if you wanted to come and talk to us, um, sir, the details are it will be at a bar called Dublin Square it's going to be on 554 4th Avenue and that is going to be Thursday July 12th at 8pm so uh, come on down I know I'd love to see you and talk to you and uh, again Josh will be there as well I'm sure you have nothing to say to him I, I usually don't I'll stand in the corner and watch you though while you talk with Indeed. Tyler and uh, incidentally uh, free drinks so, if you want to go and, uh, you know, get something to drink with your buddy Tyler and his uh, acquaintance, Josh, then, uh, and you know, then uh, you can come and do that. So, uh, I think that's it as far as business. Uh, thank you all for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. Thank you. And I'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.